suppose porridge would still be like the best comparison in the kind of English, like comforting and smooth and rich, but not too flavored. And then you would put like a chili garlic sauce on top, or you put just chilies, or you eat it with loads of kind of onion. Or the, the idea is that what you're eating it with is the punch, and that's the comfort. So we always have like in honey and coal, which is where he ate that. It's like a chili garlic sauce that goes on top before we serve it, and that's kind of the garlic hit. You're listening to the Melting Pot Podcast, where we explore the UK's diverse food culture. of cuisines in our country. Some say it's because our own cuisine isn't very exciting, while others see it as a reflection of our openness to other cultures. Even our home cooking has been influenced by immigrant communities, whose nostalgia for their homeland has enriched our kitchens. In our first podcast, we take a look at how hummus, a staple of Middle Eastern cuisine made from chickpeas, became popular in the UK. First, let's find out a bit about the origins of hummus. We spoke to Sami Zubeda, Professor of Politics and Sociology at Birkbeck, University of London, whose research interests include food culture in the Middle East. The word hummus is an Arabic word to mean chickpeas. So strictly speaking, what we're talking about is the kind of now globalized product is what's in the Middle East in Arabic is called hummus botahina. The history of that, I mean, it's very difficult to know uh, the exact history. We know the geography of it. The geography of it is that it was predominantly a part of the food repertoire of the uh, Arab Levant, that is Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, and uh, it spread from there uh, in places like Iraq, where I grew up. Uh, initially, you know, until the 1940s or 50s, hummus was unknown, and it was a, a kind of import from Syria. Uh, similarly, um, many other parts of uh, Middle East, uh, sort of Egypt, the Gulf, uh, North Africa, uh, again, you know, they only got to know hummus with the kind of um, diasporas and commerce and globalization that uh, uh, that occurred in, you know, the latter uh, decades of the 20th century. So, in fact, geographically, its origin is fairly clear. Waitrose was one of the first supermarkets to stock hummus in the late 1980s, followed by M&S in around 1990. By the end of the 90s, hummus could be found in most supermarkets. But why did they start selling it in the first place? Katie Salter, who writes about food and travel for various publications, including The Guardian, The Telegraph and The Times, explains. It was obviously around before that, and there's, I think, a few reasons for that. There's a very influential food writer called Claudia Roden, who wrote a book called Middle Eastern Food, which came out in 1970. I'm sure I would never have written a cookbook if it wasn't for the fact that we had to leave Egypt and we thought... That was very popular. She was sort of like the um, Elizabeth David of that kind of food, if you will. So people were aware of hummus. There was a lot of British travel to the Middle East in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and 
conversely, there was a lot of immigration from the region to the UK in the 1970s. Lebanese immigrants, for example, because of the civil war there. Edgware Road in West London, centre of the capital's Lebanese community. Uh, and a lot of Turkish Cypriots and Turkish immigrants set up, uh, as well as Lebanese um, immigrants, set up restaurants in London. And hummus was a staple at all those places. So it was sort of perfect storm for, for hummus, really. Here's Professor Sami Zubeda again. Cypriot, Greek Cypriot restaurant had hummus, you know, in... Um, the Charlotte Street area of London, for instance, there were several uh, Greek kebab joints uh, which had hummus. And so people came to think, uh, people who went to these places came to think of hummus as Greek. Cyprus, in terms of its food culture, has much more in common with the Arab Levant mm. and with southern Turkey than it does with Greece. And uh, so people went on holiday to Greece and demanded hummus. And so the Greeks discovered hummus. I think Middle Eastern food has really moved on since hummus became popular. So in the sort of late 90s, there was a restaurant called Morrow that was very influential. And that um, was sort of North African food in general, but they had a best-selling cookbook in the early noughties. And that, that made hummus even bigger. And then you have people like Ottolenghi coming along, Sabrina Goyor, who wrote Persiana. One of the biggest success stories to come out of the UK's Middle Eastern food movement is Honey & Co. Israeli chefs Sarit Packer and Itamas Rulovich both worked with Yotam Ottolenghi before opening their own restaurant serving traditional Middle Eastern food in 2012. Since then, they have published award-winning cookbooks set up Honey and Spice, a deli where they sell their favourite ingredients, and Honey and Smoke, a Middle Eastern grill house. They even host their own podcast where they chat to other chefs, writers and food producers. We spoke to Sarit about hummus and the best way to cook chickpeas. Soak them overnight, then strain them and put fresh water. Boil them, add some bicarb or baking powder. You need something because what you want to do is break the skins down completely. And that's the only way to do it. Skim it like crazy because you don't want any other foam. That makes your hummus quite dark. So it's quite nice to have a nice light hummus. Um, so you skim it as it's cooking. And then when it's almost like really breaking apart, so everything kind of becomes like a porridge in the thing, I would take it off, not strain it at all, and blitz all that liquid with some tahini and garlic and lemon and salt. And that's all we do. I suppose porridge would still be like the best comparison in the kind of English, like comforting and smooth and rich but not too flavored and then you would put like a chili garlic sauce on top or you put just chilies or you eat it with loads of kind of onion or the, the idea is that what you're eating it with is the punch and that's the comfort so we always have like in honey and coal which is where he ate that there's like a chili garlic sauce that goes on top before we serve it and that's kind of the garlic hit but then the bottom is super smooth and then you want to kind of do the whole pita thing but just yeah to me it's kind of a perfect early lunch, you sit, you eat a bowl, that's all you need. Hummus is popular all over the world now, but we seem to be particularly attached to it here in the UK. London has been called the hummus capital of Europe, and in 2013, a survey revealed that more than 40% of Brits have a pot of hummus in the fridge, more than twice as many as any of our European counterparts. Here's Katie Salter again. I think it, it is pretty mainstream in most European countries, uh, North America, but we are that we have been called the uh, European capital of hummus. Um, 
I think it's because, I mean, it's quite a strange one because British, British food obviously has a um, reputation, traditional British dishes, for being quite bland. But I think there's obviously, there's always been this curiosity, this interest from Britain for the food of different immigrant cultures. And actually, we are more open um, to spicy dishes, dishes with unusual ingredients than obviously we appear. But hummus in particular, I think it's for several reasons. I think it's cheap, um, it's accessible, um, it's faintly exotic, but it's not like ridiculously so. We've always we've always liked having a, a dip at a, a picnic or a buffet um, or a, a party. You know, we've always had things we wanted to dip veg sticks in and, and crisps and that kind of thing. I think it's popular with children. And I think it's perceived as being a shortcut for being healthy because of the protein um, from the chickpeas. Um, but obviously, interestingly, the way we eat it, you know, dunking a carrot button or a, a kettle chip into fridge-cold hummus is, is, is not the way that they would eat it in the Middle East. Traditionally, hummus is a peasant dish. As Sarit mentioned, people would eat it like we eat porridge. A warm bowl of hummus in the morning before work would keep farmers going until their next meal. Some countries like Egypt and Greece have traditional recipes similar to hummus, but with different ingredients. So in Egypt it's made with, with uh, broad beets, but it's the same thing, so they call it full. Um, and they eat that as a breakfast, so it's a porridge, warm again, in all of kind of Israel, Lebanon, Syria. It's, it's, yeah, it's mostly a breakfast dish. That kind of evolved in time and became something that then you would eat on your on your meza selection before you started eating but yeah. There are other versions, so we make masabakha, which is a more kind of inspired by uh, the Galilee, and that's kind of where you just cook the chickpeas until they're almost melted and they start to crush up, but you don't actually whiz them up and you, if you're using tahini, it's only a bit spooned on top and you eat it more like a porridge rather than a dip. Uh, or mashasha, which is very much kind of half way between those two. Uh, but that's really all. There is. I don't do hummuses that are flavoured with roasted pepper. Like, all of that is not hummus to me <laughs> at all. While hummus itself is not a traditional Greek dish, a similar dip called fava is a staple of every Greek taverna. Gina Deleyanis is the head chef of production at Honey and Smoke. She was born in Boston but grew up in Athens and has worked in various Middle Eastern restaurants. We asked her about fava and how it compares to hummus. The traditional one is yellow split pea fava which is cooked with a, like a, maybe an onion and a carrot and then pureed to really smooth, which is very similar to the process that we use for hummus, which is almost like a soup consistency <laughs> that sets up to like a beautiful, creamy, final result. But there's no tahini in it. So I think that's what, for me, that's what defines hummus is that the addition of tahini. So there's the lemon juice, there's the, the bean component, but no tahini. Chickpeas are mainly used as like a very slow, slow braised, um, uh, slow, like a slow cooked casserole type of dish, which is very similar to other Middle Eastern countries. Um, but Greek food is always a bit less like strong on the spices and like, lemon is everywhere obviously so we'll be finished with with lemon but not a puree so not a hummus hummus has always been a political issue too in 2008 the so-called hummus wars began when lebanon sued israel 
for infringement of copyright laws and petitioned the EU to recognize hummus as Lebanese. That Israel is obsessed with hummus is undeniable, as Sarit told us. We eat a lot of it. It's <laughs> stupid. Like if we, we've, a few times we've gone with our chefs to trips back home to show them kind of what we're trying to do and stuff like that. And one of the things we do is go into a supermarket and show them the hummus aisle. It's an aisle. <laughs> And honestly, it's ridiculous. It's like there's maybe 16 different producers and each one of them has at least five to six different toppings that they do or sizes of containers. And it's literally a whole aisle of a supermarket that is filled with tubs of hummus and like a regular consumption for a whole, like people buy a kilo tub of hummus as just their kind of weekly shop. I mean, it's really stupid. I laugh that it's kind of got like a a hidden drug that nobody knows about quite yet and they should research because it's, it is a whole country that eats a lot of it. So whether it's chickpeas, broad beans or split peas, different societies came up with a simple idea of a puree made with whatever they could grow. But when it comes to hummus itself, UK supermarkets have adapted it and created modern versions of the dish. Roast pepper, lemon and coriander and caramelised onion are some of the flavours on offer. We asked Sarit Packer what she thinks about this. Like, it's okay to say someone is a dip, something is a dip. Like, call something a pepper dip. Even call it a pepper and chickpea dip. That's fine, you know. Or, I don't know, what it is. there's all these weird ones. If you, you want to do an avocado and chickpea dip as well, you can do it. But, like, now they're calling stuff that has no chickpeas in it hummus. And that, to me, completely doesn't make any sense. Because it's got to have chickpeas. That's what it is. Hummus existed when we moved here. We would never buy it. It was super garlicky and really uncooked because for us it has to be super smooth if you taste the chickpeas something's gone wrong there um, so there was a bit but really bad and these kind of Edgeware Road restaurants were serving their version um, but with a lot of kind of they use like uh, lemon salt sometimes which is just not very nice citric acid basically that adds a really sharpness but it's not very nice to eat so but now it's getting better. It's still not amazing. I have to say hummus in supermarkets here, this still does not equate to what I would say is supermarket hummus. Like, uh, for me, it's still a much creamier, richer, smoother thing than what is sold here. Um, but I know a lot of people are working still on, on changing it and stuff like that. And there's a few important imported brands that are better. But this is a, it's a progression. When I grew up in Israel, what you got at home was in tins like in like really preserved tins, and that was gross. <laughs> and then that evolved into how to, so it's about people knowing how to pass track, because it can be quite dangerous as well. Hummus can ferment quite easily, and it can create uh, quite a lot of bacteria that are really bad for you. So it's probably about people understanding the process and how to preserve it and not poison anyone. Katie Salter again. Instead of sort of generic Middle Eastern food, you're now at a point where you see uh, recipes, recipe books for Syrian food um, or Palestinian food or Lebanese food or Israeli food. And I think the fact that hummus sort of came first and that was almost like a gateway drug to more interesting and more authentic uh, recipes. Um, now you've got other ingredients like pomegranate molasses, for example, that probably wouldn't have become popular if we hadn't had the hummus craze first. And tahini is an interesting one because obviously most people know that as an ingredient in hummus. And that's now quite a trendy ingredient that you're seeing in, in baking, like tahini brownies, that kind of thing. 
And I say hummus itself is, I mean, it, it was a food trend so long ago that now it's just a staple. But uh, Middle Eastern food has, our knowledge of it has increased so much since then. And I think that was because hummus came first and sort of provided that entry point to explore other dishes in the region. So hummus is an example of how a simple dish that can seem mundane in one place can become a source of comfort for nostalgic immigrants. It was only after years of living in the UK that Sarit Packer first started to cook the food of her homeland. You start to miss these flavours from home that you never thought you cared about. <laughs> you really don't. When you're there and you're eating it all the time, you don't think about it. But when there's absolutely nothing to be found that compares, it's a problem. And then you start thinking, I've got to make this because nothing else is going to settle this craving. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go to meltingpotmag.com where you can read more about Sarit Packer and the story behind Honey & Co. This episode of Melting Pot was produced and edited by Jess Brown Swinburne, Ashling O'Leary and me, Julia Webster. Our original music is by Gully Trim. Melting Pot is an online magazine created by journalism MA students at City, University of London.